What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson what that city felt like. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to try and describe a certain interaction you have walking down the street with someone that leaves you feeling a certain kind of warmth. It's part of where this movie came out of, was us working through those feelings. That's director Joe Talbot talking about his film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which played in limited release earlier this year. Talbot's film is one we're considering for this year's Film Spotting Golden Brick Award, which goes to our overlooked movie of the year. This week on the show, we run through this year's candidates and share my conversation with Joe Talbot and his film star and co-writer Jimmy Fails. And we'll hear from director Riley Stearns, whose Brick nominee is The Art of Self-Defense. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's the end of November, Josh, which means two things. It's Thanksgiving, of course, here in the States. We do wish a happy Thanksgiving to everyone celebrating the holiday with family and friends. And it means the countdown to our best films of 2019 has begun in earnest. Yikes. The screeners, which we're fortunate to get for the most part, are piling up. The great movies that are going to be in awards contention at the end of the year are hitting theaters. And before you know it, we're submitting our ballots for the best films of the year and more for the Chicago Film Critics Association. So I don't know what we're doing talking right now. We should be watching movies. Absolutely. I'm not even aware of what that deadline is for the CFCA. And I don't want to know. It'll just send me into a panic. Our Thanksgiving tradition here on the show the last couple of years has been to announce the shortlist for the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award, which we give to our favorite underseen or overlooked film of the year. It's a movie from a new or emerging filmmaker that shows some formal ambition. And of course, the other important criterion is that at least one of us has seen and recommended the movie. Later in the show, we're going to run through the titles that we've shortlisted for this year's award. We'll also revisit Adam's conversation with Riley Stearns, the director of one of those shortlisted titles, The Art of Self-Defense. That one stars Jesse Eisenberg and Alessandro Nivola. First, though, we're going to hear from the director and star of Another Brick, Shortlister, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This is directed by first-time feature filmmaker Joe Talbot, and it tells the story of Jimmy, a young man with dreams of reclaiming a large Victorian house in the heart of the city that he spent some time living in when he was a child. It's a home that his grandfather built. Jimmy is played by Jimmy Fales in his first film role, and Fales was a childhood friend of Talbot's, so this film story is very much Fales' story. He shares a writing credit with Talbot on the movie. The Last Black Man in San Francisco debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January, where Talbot won the festival's Best Dramatic Directing Award, along with a special Creative Collaboration Award that he shared with Fales. The movie played in limited release over the summer, and here's my conversation with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fales. So, Jimmy, this is your story. You play a character with your name and the house and family elements are rooted in your actual experience. And you guys were friends going back to your teenage years. Uh Is that right? Yeah. I'm curious about how both of you on this film approached the truth. And I don't mean so much, you know, what lines up with reality, what events actually happened or not, but how you each felt about taking your individual experiences and meshing those together and then translating them to the screen into something that is ultimately a fictionalized version of of Jimmy's story. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think it's 
um, I think this story, you know, when it first, the story that inspired everything, which is, you know, the story of the house and my, my family story, I think um, once people reached out and um, were telling us how much they related to that, I think that sort of helped the story get more and more developed. Um, yeah, what Jimmy's referring to in that is early on we knew, you know, this was going to be a hard thing to make a feature-length film. We'd never done mm-hmm. it before. I'm a high school dropout. He's only ever starred in my movies. So we shot a concept trailer, which was essentially him skating through the city, telling the story of his grandfather that had inspired the film. And so when we put it online, not really expecting much or knowing what could happen, we started getting these emails from people who were saying, um, you know, these same things are happening in my city. And some of those people are actually in the Bay Area. And so we kind of banded together in what felt like the last group of artists in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And together we developed it um, over, you know, a few years. Um, and I think through that process, I mean, everything that we've done, that we've made, including with my brother Nat, we made movies growing up, it always came from some true story. And then through our sort of conversations and our collective imagination grew into something else. Mm -hmm. But we tried to keep the core of what was interesting about it to begin with, Mm -hmm. like what had made us want to make it. Even if characters changed and situations did, they often came from things that Mm -hmm. that we had seen. So I think that, you know, Jimmy says it sometimes, but I think it's true. It's like we wanted to make it feel emotionally true, no matter how dreamlike the world was. The part that really resonated with me, I grew up in a small town in Iowa and moved to Chicago about 16 years ago. But the part that really resonated with me was Jimmy's attachment, your attachment to the house, that kind of sense of eternal ownership over this. I think about the first house I lived in as a kid and lived in through junior high. I still romanticize it completely. Mm -hmm. If I'm back in town, I drive by it every time I go there. If I had the means, I'd I'd buy it and I'd just leave it sit empty (laughs) for like two times a year that I could go hang out and it'd be the worst summer home of all time. (laughs) But it's something I would do if I absolutely could. My dad, I think about, he had a guitar when I was a kid and uh, a motorcycle Mm. that now that he's passed, if I could get my hands on those, I'd, yeah. I'd, of course, I'd give anything to do that. And I'm just, I guess I'm kind of curious about that and, and your relationship to that idea of, of ownership over those things and why we sort of as, as humans, I guess, just inherently romanticize objects and things like that. I think, well, what, I got a question for you too, sure. if that's okay. So yeah. what, is, what is that house? Because you would want it back. What does it represent for you? Why would you want it back? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, and Mm -hmm. I thought about it in relation to this film. And Uh I think it is – it's more than just it being something from your past that you romanticize. Mm -hmm. You romanticize it because it's a time from your past when things were more stable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, exactly. The house represents – for me, it represents family. Yeah. represents ownership. You know, I've never owned anything to that, you know – I've never owned a house, obviously. I'm 24, so, you know, but – um, I think that's what it represented, and that's what that was my only tie to the city that made me feel like I belonged, I guess, because it doesn't feel like I belong that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, does that, does that mm-hmm. answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's like everyone has some longing for something from their childhood, you know, whether it's as big as a home 
And like in Jimmy's case, this place where your whole family was before they weren't anymore, you know, mm -hmm. and you have memories of what that felt like. Or for us collectively, like the city, you know, there was a city that we grew up in. And I think that was sort of one of the first things we talked about as we became close friends was like, what that city felt like mm -hmm. it's a hard thing to try and describe it's this amorphous sort of feeling of like sometimes you can distill it in like a certain interaction you have walking down the street with someone that leaves you feeling a certain kind of warmth or uh, a, a bakery that you went to and the smells of that place um, you know collectively I think those experiences are what make the San Francisco that we grew up in and as that city feels farther and farther away and that regional culture of, you know, all the things that feel to us mm -hmm. like San Francisco is, uh, you know, at the threat of being lost, I think it's, it's part of where this movie came out of was us working through those feelings and also almost wanting to capture that city before it's totally gone. Yeah, yeah. And that feeling and that amorphous quality you talked about, you definitely succeed in in capturing and, and translating to the screen. I, I Maybe you just kind of answered it, but I'm curious about how you did manage to mix that sort of tone and that style of, of realism at times, certainly, but also surrealism and fantasy and whether or not that's something that absolutely was crucial to telling this story mm -hmm. and this San Francisco story versus whatever next film you guys might make together. Right. Is it going to be similar at all in style? Obviously, well, think, I'm talking about a hypothetical, but is it something that would be similar or would it, or, or was it just the perfect tone and style for this well, film? Well, I think San Francisco kind of feels real and surreal at times, yeah. and we're products of that, so that's, that's what comes through in our storytelling, I feel like, you know? So mm -hmm. kind of was always, it wasn't something like we thought needed to feel like a dream, but it just, it does kind of feel that way at yeah. times because the way that you you know, you feel nostalgia for the place that you're from. It's kind of dreamlike. It's like nostalgia is kind of like dreaming in a sense, right? Yeah. Because you're, you know, you, you always remember it in a certain way. So I think that just, you know, it just speaks to our way of storytelling. Sure. I don't know if Joe has. Well, Joe, no, was, yeah. it, was it more sort of, were there actual tactics then you took, approaches to that to, to make that, uh, to give us that feeling as viewers? Or was it more uh, kind of instinctual, as, as Jimmy suggested? I think some of it's instinctual. Like some of it, as you're doing it, you're following your gut uh, as to what, how to capture the feeling of what, like as Jimmy said, San Francisco feels like. But I think there are, there's a certain like nostalgia that is baked into San Francisco's history, you know, that does feel specific to that place. Uh, you read stories of Mark Twain, like, I believe in the 1870s going oh god it's nothing like the 1860s mm -hmm. it's gone to the dogs this was such a fun town in the 1860s there's a line that's similar in vertigo where a character says to jimmy stewart oh san francisco is not what it mm -hmm. once was and so there is this longing for a time that came before you or that you you know had maybe first arrived in san francisco during um as the city is changing and yet i also think there are very harsh realities that come with that change. It's not just uh, looking at the past with rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the very people that define San Francisco, the people that fought for it, the people that have helped create the, the city that we love being pushed out. And so it's, I don't think that that change is uh, just a product of you know, being a human and, and longing for the past. I mm -hmm. think we're really seeing um, 
are fearing that we're seeing the destruction of our city. And so, you know, there are certain ways you think about rendering that um, certain light that you want to capture and colors. Yeah. Um, obviously, people know one of the magical things about the city is it's Victorians. Mm-hmm. And so this film is based around a Victorian. Um, I think they kind of capture the imagination for people because they're almost palatial, you know. Mm-hmm. And they also, every Victorian is different from the last. They all have unique detailing that make them feel like individuals. And um, I think that's something that we don't see in the newer architecture that's creeping in um, that feel, as Jimmy sometimes says, more like shelving. They look like shelving or or boxes, cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think some of that's just inherent to San Francisco. But definitely the the look uh, in the cinematography, I think about that warm yellow glow that you get. And you notice it early on, the sun, you know, kind of bouncing off the water in, mm-hmm. in these neighborhoods. And then even when I think it's we're in Mont's house, the first time we're in the room with Mont and Jimmy, and Jimmy pops his head around a, a corner, mm-hmm. and there's that light, the yellow the yellow light right there kind of illuminating yeah, him. So yeah. clearly something you the, were going yes. for. Well, and Adam, our DP, I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about what he did, he had 10 days of prep on this movie, which is an unusually short amount of time. Um, and making it even more difficult was we had this very tight shooting schedule. I think one of the first things to go on independent films now is the quality of making a world feel immersive because one of the only ways to do that is to create a sort of consistent visual language, which is hard to do with mm-hmm. limited time because you're up against all these scheduling conflicts. One of them on our film was we just had to, no matter how we rejiggered the schedule, shoot um, some of those early scenes during the ugliest hours of light, which is in the middle of the day. Mm. Harsh light beating Mm -hmm. down on you, especially, you know, there's no trees. So we couldn't hide from that light. And these are the scenes where Jimmy and Mont are on the dock um, and they're waiting for the bus and Mont is sitting in his boat. Um, Adam, brilliantly using mirrors and lights and a let that he built, was able to actually embrace that harsh Mm -hmm. light and use that to start to define one of the, you know, the p- part of its visual language as a film. Mm-hmm. So then we were able to apply some of that to when we were shooting the nighttime exteriors, bringing in, like you said, some of that yellow glow. Um, and I think that just speaks to, you know, his his deep understanding of, of uh, the camera. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the film in, in a microcosm, right? Embracing that harshness, acknowledging the harshness, <laughs> but then also translating that into adoration, which is how you, it, it seems you feel about the city. I love yeah. that. Yeah, in the, in the press notes um, I read, obviously we talked about how personal this is to Jimmy, and you've touched on, Joe, how it is to you as well, but in the notes, Jimmy says of you that you were the guy in the neighborhood always making stuff and that your camera was recording everything we were doing. And in the film, we have Jonathan Majors as Mont, who is a playwright, and he's always writing, and he's always observing what's happening to everyone around him, what's going on in the neighborhood. I was curious if you, do you see Mont as a stand-in for you in some ways? I don't. You don't? I think it's a natural question to ask. But in truth, there's a guy we met early on in making this named Prentice. And Prentice was just this wonderful, unique San Franciscan. And so we started thinking about what a friendship between Jimmy was quite different from Prentice uh, in the ways that he's different from Montgomery in the film would be like and um, and so he was really the inspiration for the character and over time that character developed and I think different friends of ours had you know minor influences on on the character but when we brought Jonathan on 
he took this idea of what this person should be, this best friend to Jimmy, and he brought him to a whole other level. You know, I think that we, Jimmy and I share a vulnerability in real life with each other. That's part of where this film comes from, is us being able just to share stories with each other and listen to each other. And I think that's obviously in the film as well. But I think that's also there because Jonathan is that way mm -hmm. as a person. Like, I watched them become really close friends as we developed this and once we brought Jonathan on. Um, and so, you know, I think that feeling and that connection that Jimmy and Mont have in the movie is just unique to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I want to ask about that. Sometimes I don't really have a good question to ask. I just want to say, man, an actor is really good. Mm. And Jonathan, and everyone's great in the cast, honestly, but Jonathan Majors is really good. And yeah. I, I was curious about that, that relationship working with him, Jimmy, and, and how you did develop that, that chemistry on screen. Um, well, I mean, that was just, you know, I think it just took meeting him. <laughs> took a meeting him one time and spending a lot of time with him. I mean, it seemed when we met him that we had known him for years already, and I think that just came across. And we also had to, you know, he also was mentoring me. This is my first film, so he was helping me a lot, like, with, you know, basic stuff like getting through, you know, breaking down a script and, and stuff like that and recommending books to read and, hmm. you know, just teaching me a lot of, of his process and... um while also respecting, you know, the fact that I'm a beginner sort of thing and, and that this is a personal story as well. So it's a little more than just acting sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was very important. And we, we had a lot of time to bond in that way. Like I just had breakfast with him yesterday morning. Really? You know, he was in Atlanta uh, filming for a show. So I'm always in contact with him, even if I get, you know, a script sent to me or something and I have an audition, I'll still call Jonathan to help me run through it, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's great. That's just, you know, that's just my boy. So I think it just it was only, it, you know, when you call action and it's like, you know, there there was never a note that Joe gave us that was like act more like friends. <laughs> right. You know, what I mean, right. you need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember asking the, the Safdie brothers. Uh, they were here to talk about Good Time and working with Robert Pattinson. And I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great film. And, and uh, asked them about a moment that Pattinson brought to. Uh, the screen that may be in the script, you guys just didn't have that in mind at all, and, mm. and the actor completely surprised you. Was there a moment like that for either of you, opposite Jonathan or directing Jonathan? Yeah, there are a few. Yeah, I mean, there's a few. Yeah. The, the, one of the wonderful things about him, he's both an uh, incredibly literary actor mm -hmm. who seems to understand the words on the page sometimes better than those of us who wrote it, <laughs> which is an <laughs> honor to work with someone like that. But he also isn't afraid of improv, and he embraces, I think, and relishes like those opportunities to get to play, as he says. And so one of those that comes to mind is there's a scene where he um, crosses the street to interrupt um, a group of guys mm -hmm. um, who are fighting and, and picking on one guy in particular, Kofi. In the script, that was written as Jonathan crossing the street and uh, putting on a strange Magda trick as a distraction, which felt fine, but it, uh, it, something about it, I just always felt like there was something more. So Jonathan instead, in the film, interrupts them and starts directing them like he's watching theater, yep. and he has a very deep background in theater. So all the names he's throwing out there, Stanislavski, and those stuff. are his heroes. Yeah. And so, you know, that moment really speaks to him. It, it's one of the moments that people, I think, often point to with his character. 
it's entirely improv. And I think we didn't even tell the guys that he was going to do that. So their confusion <laughs> is genuinely bewildered. They're like, what are you talking about? And I think after I the it. first couple takes, they started to realize, oh, he's trying to direct them. And they start saying things back to him like, you're not a director, bro. You know? Yeah. But it felt like this real exchange happening from that. Yeah. Can we talk about the music a little bit? Our friend here on the show, Michael Phillips from the Tribune, gave the movie a very positive review and said that the musical score is very fine stuff, supple and surprising, and it's a blend of classical jazz and pop strains. It adds to the otherworldly quality established and sustained so well by Talbot and by the actor. So we kind of touched on already that otherworldly quality that you were trying to capture visually, and you get it with the music as well, that eclectic kind of mix of sounds uh, between the soundtrack, pulling actual songs, popular songs, and, and working with the score. What was your approach there? Well, there are two different ones for each. For the music uh, that was original that Emil Mosseri composed, I mean, he wrote the music of my dreams, I always say, because I grew up, you know, wanting to make movies as much for, you know, any uh, director or actor. Uh, the music drew me to them. I, like, listened to soundtracks as a kid. My mm-hmm. house, Last Mohicans and the piano and Danny Elfman, you know, all of his music. And so I always had dreams of, of being able to make a movie that could justify a score that beautiful. Um, and of course, it's this heartbreaking thing you go through when you first make your first movies, like me and my brother did. You try to score these small ragtag movies with a big score, and they never they quite huh. <laughs> get yeah. there, and it ends up just feeling like comedic and ironic, what you hoped would feel emotional. So, but thank God I met Emil, and he felt a similar way. And, um, you know, Emil and I talked a lot about how this music had to feel like it was the the music of a deposed prince who'd been banished to the outskirts of the city and made this, you know, weekly pilgrimage back to the heart of the city to get the family thrown back. And so he used brass and woodwinds. And I think, you know, he has a, a background in a band. So he understands, you know, uh, also how to write melodies that you want to sing and that stick in your head that feel in some ways, uh, more like pop in the melodies themselves than classical music or film score music but the arrangements felt like old film scores you know we we had a symphony in uh, Budapest that we used for the strings that that was an important part of this film because you also want to capture the magic of Jimmy's character and this dream to get this house back. You know, you don't want a droning, restrained one tone for the score. For us, it was always like this music is an important part yeah. of, of the story. It should be romantic and grandiose. It should feel it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just in terms of the, the, the pop songs in the film, you know, when you grow up in San Francisco, you grow up on all this music that came out of the city in the 1960s, Jefferson Airplane and Moby Grape and Janice. And, you know, part of that music lives in our hearts as like coming from a more romantic time in the city's past. So we wanted to take those songs that we love and kind of pervert them in the new San Francisco, which is a darker place where musicians are not living in these palatial Victorians in the hate like Jerry Garcia did and the airplane did, but now they're sometimes sleeping in front of those very houses. So that's where that use of that music Mm. came from. I don't want to get bogged down too much in influences because I don't want to suggest that 
this is a film that owes anything to any other films or filmmakers. And yet, uh, definitely early on, um, I, I felt like I was uh, noticing a lot of spikely elements in, in the sense specifically of do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the personalities on the street yeah, that's a big, that that's we're a meeting, big was that influence. an influence? I mean, just in terms of grabbing, capturing, you know, the neighborhood and the, the livelihood of it and the people that make the neighborhood what it is, which is very important to this movie because the people make San Francisco. So the way Spike did that such a long time ago is very and then, you know, it's a very big influence, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, yeah, shout yeah. out to Spike Lee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. one of our favorite uh, movies. Yeah, that that's a movie, you know, changed my life when I saw it. Really? Um, and another one is, uh, you know, that, that lived, I think, that was like required viewing, we always said, for everyone that came on was Harold uh, and Maude. Mm. <laughs> because it has a sort of, for two things, it has sort of an unusual depiction of the Bay Area. A lot of people don't realize it's the Bay Area. I had completely blanked on that. Yeah, yeah and it uses these sort of lesser-known locations, not quite as uh, traditionally, I guess, attractive locations, to create this really beautiful world. Like, uh, it's in the outskirts, a lot of it, like San Bruno, you know, surrounding suburbs of San Francisco and, and some areas. So I think that movie... Um, opened my eyes to how you could show the city that you love in a different light. Um, and also, every character in that film is treated with empathy mm-hmm. and love. There's this like hippie, loving ethos that I imagine came from Hal Ashby. Um, that was one of the most touching things someone said to us at Sundance. They ran up to us. This older man was crying after the premiere, and he said, the spirit of Hal Ashby lives. And it, we were with all our collaborators, and we all got teary because really? it was like he's one of our heroes. Yeah. So, so it it is a film ultimately that does become about, I wouldn't say just the power of narratives, but the need for narratives yeah, individually and, and collectively and, and kind of that, that storytelling element. A lot of films and filmmakers who go down this path of telling stories about telling stories mm-hmm. then kind of turn it inward onto themselves a little bit. It's like, uh, we know yeah. we're making a movie, you right. know, and we're going to acknowledge that in some ways. And, and I never felt like this film oh, chose yeah. to do that. No, I mean, right? we, again, we're, we're just storytellers. So, yeah, we're storytellers. We're movie makers. After we're storytellers, mm-hmm. so that's that's the main, that's our main goal is to tell yeah. the story. And I think you know there is obviously an element of, I mean, you could argue in some ways meta. It's like Jimmy's playing a character, his name For is sure. Jimmy, right? Um, seen with his mom is played by his actual mother. Hmm. Um, we're in some ways watching these things that either happened in his life, or friends of ours, or mine almost reenacted now with a large camera and lights and a crew. There's something surreal about that feeling, sure. just being on set and watching that happen. Um, but you try not to keep it too insider baseball. You know, you want to make something that you hope is interesting <laughs> beyond the people that experienced it. But in truth, I don't know that you ever know until you screen it for people. You're so in the weeds in those last weeks of the edit you've watched it so many times it's lost the resonance it had for you when you first made it you're sort of getting into like more technical filmmaking at the end just trying to put the finishing touches on that I don't know that um, I quite knew how it would feel to other people particularly those outside of San Francisco who wouldn't have the same references that we had um, until we showed it at Sundance which is both exciting and uh, quite scary. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I want to close with our 
our quick film spotting five, just rapid fire Q&A. The last movie you guys both individually or together saw in a theater that wasn't your own movie. Oh, man. And wait, and did you like it or not? <laughs> did I watch it in the theater? <laughs> Jesus. I don't remember what, what I last watched in the theater. Oh, my God. Well, in the home theater. I actually watched Good Time very recently. Really? I think that was the last one. But I watched it pretty recently, and that's the one that I remember watching yeah. in the theater. Joe? But in the home theater. Yeah, yeah that, that works. It counts. <laughs> uh, the favorite. The favorite. I, I loved it. Yeah. Lanthony Moses is great. What I, was, I just watched that, too, on the did plane. You? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Uh, how did that transfer to the train, to the plane? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, did, did it work? Transfer? I'm sure it, it worked It did work. It did. <laughs> so it was fine. Yeah. You know? uh, what about a movie? Here, I'm, I'm making you revisit your memory. But a movie that you you've loved, saw years ago, and revisited recently mm. um, maybe Harold and Maude me, beyond that yeah. w- Women in Love okay. actually I just did something for Criterion uh, about that film um, and it, that movie continues to blow my mind mm. Ken Russell yeah. oh my god I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank okay. here but I'm sorry that's alright that's alright <laughs> just a couple more uh, this one this will be easier uh, a random film or a filmmaker that you love Ilya Kazan mm. I just watched Face in the Crowd. Mm. Amazing movie. So when someone says, Jimmy, uh, favorite director or directors, who, who comes to mind? Favorite director or directors? Joe Talbot. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Is it 20 bucks? Fair already, enough. Man, <laughs> okay, so two more. Movie, a movie you credit with becoming a filmmaker. We've heard a lot of titles already, but one that you look back on and think, this is where the seed was planted for me to want to do um, this. For me, on the waterfront. Yeah. Ghost World. Great choices. Last question, then, a favorite book about filmmaking? Mm. Book about... About like filmmaking a, or like about a, movies. It, it doesn't okay. have to be about the technical process. It can be, you know, John Sayles thinking in pictures or Lamette's making movies. It can be just about, you know, directors or their careers or a certain film. Are there any that you've ever I, really I mean, looked to? Well, he's more of a director. I read Marlon Brando's autobiography. Really? So, I mean, that, I guess, yeah. you know. But I'm not, you know, I don't really read about directors that much, mm-hmm. you know, as much as actors sure. sort of thing. But that had to certainly inform yeah, your process no, a little bit, right? Definitely. Yeah. I'm not just saying this because I'm in Chicago, but I, I do love going back. Uh, it's not books. I'm cheating a little bit. And reading after I watch a movie, Ebert's Reviews. Sure. From the period. We it's, all do it. It's the best. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, you, yeah, you can't have one without the other. Right. And I love just the context it gives you at that time. And it's always kind of mind-boggling how often he got it right right yeah <laughs> you know as sure. other critics maybe even didn't at the time yeah yeah without a doubt well really appreciate your time and your insights and really enjoyed the movie and wish you the best of luck with it thank you thank, thank you, you so much for having us if you're going to San Francisco be sure to My thanks again to Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fales, the director and star of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's one of the films on the shortlist for our 2019 Golden Brick Award. It's currently available to rent on demand on most platforms, highly recommended by us. And Josh, it's worth pointing out that this movie has someone with a lot of clout in its corner as if it needed it. When I put out the call a few weeks ago on Twitter saying, what are some of the movies we should definitely be considering for our golden brick this year? 
none other than Ryan Johnson, director of the Thanksgiving release Knives Out, wrote in right away and said, am I allowed to make a pick here? The last black man in San Francisco. And I feel like we should at least consider what he has to say since the award is, after all, named after him. I suppose that's His fair. debut movie, yeah. Brick, is what inspired this award. We should take his opinion into account for that and, and many, many other reasons. We're going to get to the rest of the titles that are on our Golden Brick shortlist next. And we'll have Adam's interview with Riley Stearns, director of The Art of Self-Defense. I was just calling because I'm near your place. I'm in my car. I can be there in I remember being in Rockford many years ago, sitting on a couch, drinking beer with my buddies, watching the film Brick, and being just blown away by it. So I feel very, very honored to be in a long line of um, uh, amazing independent cinema. So um, maybe I'll see you guys in Chicago sometime soon. Enjoy the rest of your night, and ciao. You're listening to Film Spotting. That's Bing Liu, director of last year's Film Spotting Golden Brick winner, Minding the Gap. As he referenced there and we referenced earlier in the show, the Golden Brick is named for Brick, Ryan Johnson's debut film from back in 2005, a movie we were early and enthusiastic champions of here on the show. And that's kind of the point of the award, to be enthusiastic champions of these films. The Brick Award didn't actually come into being until 2009, the first award going to Duncan Jones and his film Moon. We've spent the 10 years since playing with the criteria a little bit and hopefully turning our listeners on to movies they might otherwise have missed. Probably worth reminding listeners what the current working criteria is for the award. We look for a movie made by a new emerging or at least new to us filmmaker. As far as the underseen or overlooked phrases we throw about, well, that's not always easy to define, but we do consider how many screens it played on and how much money the movie made. So if you take Minding the Gap as an example, it made about $80,000 in its theatrical run and no brick winner in the history has made more than $5 million domestically. Another quality we look for is a clear directorial vision or artistic ambition that really makes it stand out, especially for an early effort from a filmmaker. And yeah, as we've said, at least one of us has to have seen it and mentioned it on the show to get it on the shortlist. So this week on the special, we're announcing the working shortlist. Then we will narrow it down to maybe three to five finalists by mid-December. We get a vote, Josh. We invite members of the film spot 
spotting family to vote, the host of the next picture show, also Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, and listeners get a vote as well. We announce the winner usually in January. We're going to get to the titles that we're considering here in a second, but we wanted to highlight a few titles that we're not considering, but that we think a lot of you probably might find suspect if we didn't touch on their eligibility. A lot of listeners responded to my tweet or sent in emails recommending these films, movies like Lulu Wang's The Farewell, and she certainly is new to us as a filmmaker, and the movie didn't get a wide release, though I think it did play on something like 900 screens by the end of its run, and it did make over 19 million at the box office and got a lot of deserved attention, so seemed maybe just a little bit too big for a brick. Another one that's in that same category, Josh, Olivia Wilde's directing debut, Books Smart, it did play in wide release, though to relatively disappointing box office, it did make over $24 million. Also, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, a follow-up to her very well-received debut film, The Babadook. The movie's definitely underseen, made under a million dollars at the box office for us. We think of Kent as already a known quantity to us and to our audience, and yeah. for that reason, we didn't consider it. One more title here, Dragged Across Concrete. This is by director S. Craig Zoller, and it stars Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson. Zoller is the director of Bone, Tomahawk, and Brawl in Cell Block 99, so two other films under his belt. And these are movies that have been on our radar. Neither of us have been able to see those, but we're definitely familiar with them. Mm -hmm. There's been, I would say, a fair amount of conversation around them. So didn't consider Dragged Across Concrete as exactly meeting the criteria either. Finally, one more here worth mentioning, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This has really been one of the year's most acclaimed movies since its debut One of our most anticipated. Our most anticipated at the Cannes Film Festival. It got a lot of praise. It will be in Chicago in early December. So neither of us has seen it. We don't know how we'll react to it. It's high on our to-do list. I have seen Skiyama's Girlhood. I'm a fan of that movie. So she's not exactly an unknown talent to me. And again, I think this is just an example of um, having a relatively high profile this year already, even though it hasn't come out yet. Yeah. Two other titles we did want to mention that right now aren't eligible because we have no way to see them. Listeners, many listeners on Twitter recommended a film from the UK called Bait that is set in a UK fishing village. It's shot on black and white, 16 millimeter film and quote, process by hand. It has garnered comparisons to Guy Madden, a filmmaker we both enjoy quite a bit. This director is Mark Jenkin. And I want to say Mark Kermode has been championing this uh, all year as well. So yeah, definitely been on my radar, but we just can't see it. We have tried. And the only thing we haven't tried actually is reaching out to the filmmaker himself at this point. Certainly seems brick worthy or worthy of being a nominee. We just don't know how we're going to see it before we vote. Also, After Midnight, this is a film directed by Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. I think it's played on the festival circuit, and it's about a man who kind of starts to lose it after his girlfriend disappears suddenly. And according to the description, something mysterious Something, not someone, tries breaking into his house. We know that Jeremy Gardner, one of the co-directors there, at least according to Twitter, has been a listener of the show in the past. And we're curious about the film, but as of right now, not available on demand or on DVD. With that, and I'm sure there are other titles we'll hear about, we are ready to give you this year's current Golden Brick nominees. You just heard my conversation with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails, the last black man in San Francisco, definitely a contender. It's made under $5 million worldwide. 
And we talked about it during that interview, certainly during our comments about the film. You see a lot of formal ambition. And if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, we recommend you do so. It's available on demand. Josh, you've been pretty good throughout the year on catching up with some of these smaller movies. A few of these you have previously recommended. A few of them are new titles you're throwing into the mix. Yeah, I have talked about Honeyland before. This is the documentary, sort of documentary, I guess you could say. That's part of this movie's appeal, but it focuses on a Macedonian bee hunter, bee farmer, whose livelihood is threatened by a family of nomadic beekeepers. And I said how it reminded me of the Iranian verite style filmmaking we experienced when we did our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. And that's part of the mystery here. This begins as almost a National Geographic documentary, but as this family moves in and the narrative starts to take hold, you do wonder how much of this is being um, manipulated, isn't the right word, but formed in a different way. So Honeyland, a pair of co-directors working there, Tamara Katevska and Lubomir Stefanov, that is available on demand. I also talked about Starfish a while back earlier this year. It comes from director Al White. It is White's featured debut. And this is about a girl mourning the death of a friend on the day the world ends. So really, yeah, it kind of merges uh, sci-fi with interior angst and definitely shows some formal ambition and vision. You can get this to rent on demand or via a Hulu subscription. Our Time Machine was another documentary I encountered. This one played the Chicago Critics Film Festival back in May, and it's about an ambitious father-son collaboration in China. The son is an influential visual artist, the father a longtime director at the Peking Opera who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, a lot of creativity um, in just depicting the art on display here. A couple of directors working on this one, S. Leo Chiang, Yang Sun, and Shuang Liang. This one is still on the festival circuit, so it's not currently available to stream. If you want to keep track of it, though, you can go to timemachinefilm.com. Now, Diane, this was my number four film of the year so far, back in July. And I don't know if I talked about it in terms of a golden brick, but it it could qualify. I mean, it's directed by Kent Jones. Jones is a critic and also the director of the New York Film Festival. But this is his first narrative feature. His previous film was a documentary about Hitchcock uh, and Truffaut, Hitchcock Truffaut. Diane is a character study. And Mary Kay Place plays a woman whose life is spent caring for others, including her drug addict son. Um, In a lot of ways, it's very every day in its depiction, but it does have a few of these flourishes that definitely give it a bit of a formal ambition slash vision and Jones relatively new as a filmmaker. So it could be considered as a golden brick. Yeah, if you were going to disqualify it, the argument would be that we actually talked about Hitchcock Truffaut here on the show and Kent Jones was on the show. I interviewed him talking about that movie. That said, as you pointed out, his first narrative feature A small movie, certainly underseen one even I need to catch up with before the end of the year. And I know there's one more, Josh, that you just caught up with this past weekend. Yeah, Burning Cane. This one, speaking of people recommending films to us for The Golden Brick, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson over at Vox responded to your tweet, Adam, saying definitely check out Burning Cane. The remarkable thing about this film is that it was made by a 17-year-old while still in high school, hmm. Philip Yaumans. I think he might be 19 now. Uh, Bernie Kane made the festival circuit for a while and has gotten distribution. And it is really 
a remarkable achievement given that age, but it also stands up just on its own. If you didn't know the age of the filmmaker, I think you would still be impressed here. It's it's basically attempting to reconcile what is heard and experienced in church with what you might see or feel when service is over and get back to life in all its messiness huh. because it it transitions between a grandmother who is negotiating this fragile relationship with her alcoholic son uh, and she's very fearful over how he's caring for his own son and then scenes of her pastor played by Wendell Pierce of The Wire, uh, really the only familiar face in the film, delivering these sweaty series of sermons. And so um, it, it's somewhat how he is is saying one thing and then we see in life other things, complicated by the fact that the, the pastor also has a habit of driving to the Piggly Wiggly while drunk. He who dies with the most toys wins. You can go out there and try to get a pretty dress, but it don't mean nothing if you're going to lose your soul. These young people don't believe a goddamn word I'm preaching up there on that stage, and I know it. No toys get you into heaven. It's the friendships that you have. It's the kindness that you do. Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you give me housing when I had no place to live? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you drink, give me water to drink when I was thirsty? You don't think I can hold my liquor? Back up now. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. So there's a lot. I don't know that the movie is so much interested in, um, in figuring out a way to reconcile that distinction as much as make poetry of it. And mm-hmm. Yalman's definitely has an eye. You can tell he's working in the tradition of Malik here, a lot of uh, atmospheric, poetic nature, imagery. Um, but he also seems to be drawing from Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter with some of his imagery, which is really interesting, and just has um, his own eye in the way there's a moment he captures a drip of rain on a car's windshield with the light glowing through it um, that's just really distinct. So hits a lot of the markers for a golden brick candidate. Again, that's Burning Cane. It did get a very small theatrical release. Right now, you can see it on Netflix. So check it out. Yeah, I definitely plan to. And if you're hearing all these titles, and we have a few more to get to, and you're thinking, these sound interesting, I wish I was processing all this or had something to write them down, don't worry. Just go to filmspotting.net and click on lists at the top of the page, and you'll find our golden bricks, or go to filmspotting.net slash bricks, and we will list all of the films we are mentioning, including the best way to see them. My three picks, Josh, I'm going to start with two documentaries of sorts. One is called Lynch, A History. It's directed by David Shields, and another Combat Obscura, directed by Miles Lagos, and I'm grouping them together here because they're similar in that they are both more video collages than traditional documentary. Combat Obscura, the riskier film, of course, in that it's taken from war footage by a combat cameraman for the Marine Corps, and I think what it's gotten most of its attention for is the way it de-glamorizes certain aspects of marine life and tells a story without trying to craft a narrative by just relying on these scenes that capture everyday life for these soldiers. And Lynch, a history not as risky but more daring formally, David Shields is an artist who likes to work within this style of collage, of montage, of using images to make connections with each other, to collide with each other, and to challenge. So he's telling the story here, the history, as the title suggests, of 
the NFL star, the retired NFL star Marshawn Lynch. Most people listening, whether you're a football fan or not, probably know him from not wanting to talk at the Super Bowl, and he was known as Beast Mode. That's kind of his brand. He did commercials for Skittles because that's his favorite candy. And what Shields does here is tell the history of Lynch with game footage, with home movie-style footage, with press conferences, footage from his past as a high school kid, and it's all enmeshed with footage that really tells the history of race in America, not just race and sport, but race in America. Both those movies, I believe, are available right now on demand on most platforms. And I also recommend a movie called Wild Rose by Tom Harper. It stars Jesse Buckley as a Scottish woman, a young Scottish woman who has aspirations of becoming a Nashville star. She's a country singer in Scotland. At the beginning of the movie, she's just getting out of jail. And it's a movie that maybe isn't as formally adventurous as all the other films we're talking about. But for very familiar subject matter, I think it finds a fresh spin on it with a great performance by Buckley and some of the best music moments of the year. The director, Tom Harper, is a TV veteran, and he does have three previous feature credits. So perhaps someone that maybe shouldn't be eligible for the brick, but completely new as far as being on our radar. He does have another film, the Aeronauts with Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne that opens in December. So two 2019 movies, but we're going to consider Wild Rose a brick nominee. Real quickly, we do want to mention three films we hope to get to before we come up with this finalist list for the bricks. Be Gone's Long Day's Journey Into Night, Light from Light, which is from director Paul Harrell, and Monos, this one directed by Colombian slash Ecuadorian filmmaker Alejandro Landis. So hopefully we'll be able to make time for those as well before we start whittling down this list. Yeah, Long Day's Journey, available right now on demand and a movie that Sean Gilman, who helped us curate our recent Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon, he had it in his shortlist of 10 or 11 movies that he thinks are among the best Chinese films of the decade. Light from Light, there's no streaming release yet, and Manos will be available on demand December 10th if you want to catch up with it. Our final Golden Brick nominee is Riley Stern's The Art of Self-Defense. It stars Jesse Eisenberg as a man who joins a dojo after getting attacked on the street. Alessandro Novola, one of the really funniest performances of the year, is the dojo's eccentric sensei. I spoke with Stern's earlier in the year. Here's that conversation. I'm taking my first class today. Your new white belt? Is that the first belt color? White is before color. You haven't earned color yet. Today's lesson, to kick with your fists and punch with your feet. That makes perfect sense. Good. There's a mental component as well. Everything should be as masculine as possible. You may want to start on those reports. That pile is getting awfully high. I won't be petting you anymore. This is for your own good. What's your favorite style of music? Adult contemporary. No, it should be metal. Riley, I was re-watching some scenes of the movie today. I'm going to resist the urge to do the Chris Farley thing where I just quote back to you the funniest lines in the movie, like pretty much everything. <laughs> the, that could be fun, though. It could be. Uh, but everything the guy who tries to sell Jesse Eisenberg's character a gun says is is hilarious. I'm actually going to throw out some questions, though, and start by saying, in addition to that homework, I watched your debut feature, Faults, which tragically we overlooked here on the show in 2015. I regret that now. And I certainly see some connections in terms of 
style and tone, but also subject. And here are just a few things I jotted down. The karate dojo is a bit like a cult, right? People interacting intensely within a confined space. And there's a lot of rules written and unwritten. There's a sensei, a leader and pupils and wisdom that's being dispensed and shared. There's a fair amount of manipulation emotionally and psychologically. And we also see characters having these personal breakthrough moments. And here, when you move on to another level, you get a belt instead of reaching another plane of existence. But I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing that the cult aspect wasn't specifically uh, what interests you, but more the idea that's really explicitly at the core of faults of, of control, of being in control of yourself and your choices and controlling others. Yeah, um, the the feeling of of manipulation and and like mind control and and like you said, just the rules of it all. Like those those were topics that I was still fascinated by and and knew that I wanted to touch on. And I thought that faults uh, the 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 idea behind that movie is that that somebody starts in a bad place, uh, ends up in a worse place, but thinks they're in a better place. That mm. was that was the I, like the structure of it for me. And this time around, I wanted to. I, like I knew I was dealing with something a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, positive, uh, even though it gets very, very dark. I knew that I wanted the, the feel of it uh, at the end of the movie to feel different than false. And so, yeah, it's, it's a different movie in a lot of ways and explored different ideas at the same time. But I do think that there's some similarities in there. And it must have just been that I didn't totally get the, the cult and, and mind control uh, elements out of my head. Uh, uh, so so needed to touch on them one more time. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy, too, or do they both open with lead characters being humiliated in cafes? What do you have against small diners? It's funny. I actually think that uh, I, I wanted to kind of nod or give a nod towards faults in the way that that film opened. But I also mainly, mainly really like the idea of starting a movie in a way that might be unrelated to the plot, but definitely tells you something about your lead character. Yeah. And faults is, is basically that you get to a sense that this person is, uh, is on the outs, uh, that they have nothing left in life and that they're just kind of a scavenger and, and that they've lost all bit of dignity. And, and with self-defense, it was that, that this character, uh, because he's being made fun of and you realize that he kn knows exactly what they're saying to him, that he's just so inactive and incapable of calling people out and, and just, uh, yeah, takes takes everything, whatever life throws out of me, takes it and doesn't really give anything back. So I, I like to to tell us something about the character without necessarily needing it to be plot related. Mm -hmm. There's another direct nod to faults, too, which I appreciated, which is Leland Orser, of course, the star of faults pops up in the TV show scene that we watch. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's watching a film or a made-for-TV movie halfway through the movie, and uh, I asked Leland if he would come in and, and be our, our detective in that film, and uh, he said, didn't even, I didn't even have to like ask uh, twice. He, he just immediately was like, yes, wherever you need me, I'm, I'm there, and uh, I love that guy so much, yeah. and I, I want to yeah. be able to work with him again in a, in a bigger context again uh, at some point down the line. So I know that you practice martial arts, specifically jujitsu, and that you attribute positive changes in your life to it. I wouldn't necessarily describe this movie as a karate movie. It's more of a vehicle to get at you know, some of the things we talked about, like this notion of control and, of course, toxic masculinity, too, as a concept in this movie. But since you do have that respect for martial arts, I'm curious if you worried at all about the response to the film from people within that community, because that dark comic or satirical approach in art 
obviously easily can be misunderstood and sometimes can provoke a lot of anger. Like, I imagine most karate senseis believe or want to believe they're nothing like the sensei Alessandro Nivola plays here, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're all in on the joke. Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely didn't want to make a film that was making fun of anybody, uh, but I do think that it's okay to poke fun at things. Uh, I'm such an avid uh, practitioner of jiu-jitsu. I, I do it every day, I'm, like five days a week at least. Uh, and so I feel like there's this sense of because I do it, I can poke fun at it a little bit. I'm definitely not uh, trying to uh, tell people that karate is bad or that it's that this is real in any way, shape, or form. I think even if you watch the movie and you walk away thinking that I made fun of karate and that I made it look bad, then I think that you weren't really watching the movie to begin with because there's so many other things in the film that happen, so many stylized moments uh, and, and things that set it apart from the real world uh, where it's obvious it's a film. It's, it's, not, it's not trying to be... Uh, uh, a promotional tool for karate or, or by that same token, it's not trying to tell people that every school is going to be run like this cult. Um, but I, I do get responses from people on Twitter here and there, people DMing me on Instagram saying that, that no karate school would ever teach this type of uh, methodology. And, and I kind of am like, yeah, yeah. So like, that's not the point of the movie for me, but uh, it was never really a concern. And, and I do think that, whether it's the karate or whether it's me kind of poking fun at the metal community, being a fan of metal myself, or even just poking fun at dachshunds and, and how they're not masculine dogs. I own a dachshund. It's like, it's like <laughs> that, that it, if you can't poke fun at yourself and your interests, uh, uh, then, then what can you do? Yeah, exactly. It's all coming from a place of love. And as unrealistic as it might be, I think of the moment early in the film where we see Casey, Jesse Eisenberg's character, standing in front of his mirror at home in his gear, and he does a move, and it, it seems like it feels good to him, and then he goes to class, and he gets that positive response, that affirmation from Sensei, and you can see how intoxicating that is. Do you remember yourself having moments like that? Do you still have moments like that in jujitsu? I have moments like that every day. And I, I feel like uh, I even I went and trained today this morning uh, prior to this. And I even had a moment like that today where, where my, uh, I, I mean, for jujitsu, oftentimes your coach or the owner of the school, the black belt there is called professor. And it kind of goes back to the Brazilian roots of, of the sport. But uh, my professor walked by at that exact moment that I was doing something wrong and he showed me this one little thing that would help make it right and not only make it right, but make it better. And then when I was able to execute it later on while I was rolling, while I was actually sparring with somebody and he saw me do that, that's a, this, like, it's almost like you made your dad smile or, or like your dad said, uh, like he's never hugged you in his entire life, but gives you that one hug and tells you, uh, yeah, you, you, did, you did good, son. Like that, that's one of those moments that, uh, or that's what it feels like for me. And, and I think that that's why I love doing uh, what I do. I love making movies. I love training jujitsu. I feel like you're always learning. You're always uh, getting better. And uh, that, that positive reinforcement is definitely uh, a fun thing. Yeah. Here's where I'd love to go off on a tangent about how I see a similarity between that smile on Jesse's face there and the smile on Leland Orser's face in a certain key moment in Faults. But we've talked about that movie enough, and I don't want to spoil that movie for anyone out there who hasn't seen it. So back to this film, there is a moment where a student even comments on it specifically how much testosterone there is in the dojo and of course in the film then as a whole Imogen Poots's character is the only woman and as much as it is about 
masculinity, this film, and a critique of a certain type of masculinity. I was really struck by how you draw attention to at least what seemed to me the intimacy between the men, the physicality of some of the moves. And I think the scene where Casey walks into the locker room for the first time and we see two of the men in their underwear practicing certain techniques basically on each other's backs. And when the blue belt character befriends Casey and he helps put his belt on, we see Casey's kind of startled reaction to the man touching him that way. And so that that dichotomy of toughness and and touching of vulnerability, it seems to me Casey's dilemma in a way, but it's also something inherent to karate, to martial arts. To martial arts, yeah. It's, it's so funny that it's, it's considered to be this, like, tough guy sport, especially MMA, like mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu. Uh, you, know, you train with a lot of people who are very uh, overtly masculine and, uh, like, jocks, and you train with people who are not. But they're, the one thing that happens on your very first day is that you're going to realize that you're going to be in very close physical contact with people and almost always it's going to be other men because even in real in the real world, like in the movie, there's only one woman at this dojo. But in the real world, you may train at a place where uh, most days there aren't women there. And then every once in a while, like one or two girls join the class. And and that's just kind of the norm. And it's it's just the, the way that it's, it's always kind of been. Uh, but you're going to get into a position like in jujitsu, my very first class I ever took. Uh, you, I laid on my back and I put my legs around somebody's waist who's on their knees and I put them in my guard and being in somebody's guard, it's very weird. The very first time you're, you, I've seen it in mixed martial arts. I've seen it in fighting before, but when you're actually in that position, it's not a normal place that you would be, uh, in, in everyday life. But it's so funny how fast that changes in your mind when you realize, what this means. Like when you're in this position, you're protecting yourself from getting uh, beaten to death in a fight or you're protecting uh, or you're keeping somebody at bay until somebody else is going to come and help you. And, and once you start putting it into that perspective of what it would be in real life, that, that weird um, feeling of, of that intimacy goes away and you, you realize that it's more of uh, a self-defense thing. It's more mm-hmm. of survival. And, and so all that stuff goes out the door eventually, but yeah, that, that initial feeling of, of intimacy is, is interesting to say the least. Have you seen Christian Petzold's film from this year, Transit? I have not, no. Okay, really interesting film and an interesting anachronism of a film based on various factors. It seems clear the movie must be set in the 1940s, but then you see certain technology or signposts that suggest it could be the present day or at least closer to it. It's deliberately enigmatic that way. And I don't think your movie is necessarily quite as inscrutable, but there is a vagueness and a mystery to the setting in terms of the production design. There's not a lot of indicators for us to latch onto about who these characters are really, what they do, what year it is even, where they live. I mean, if I hadn't read that it was shot in Louisville, I would never have guessed that or attached the characters to that city. And I don't know if it makes sense to say or it's accurate to say it feels almost a little sci-fi in that approach. But for me, it definitely heightens the absurdity of the story and makes it all feel a little bit more like a parable. Is that what you were after? The idea was to make it feel like its own world, uh, first and foremost. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's where the sci-fi element might come into people's minds is that it just doesn't feel like our world and that rules are slightly different. Nothing is fantastic to the point where you don't believe these characters are real or you don't believe that they they're like uh, their motivations or, or they don't feel like real people at all, but I did want them to kind of feel different than the space that we ourselves live in. Uh, The time period is supposed to be more of just like this timeless, arbitrary um, space where 
cell phones don't exist, internet doesn't exist, and technology tends to span eras and decades and, and different devices. And, and it really it was two things uh, in particular. It was mainly to, uh, to let it feel more like its own world, like it, it exists in its own, in its own space and territory. But also, I didn't want people 10 years from now to watch the movie and say that they knew exactly when it was made. Mm-hmm. It was more important for me to some, for somebody to watch the movie and just feel like it was timeless. Like it, it could be, it could have been made uh, that year, or it could have been made 20 years ago, and it didn't really matter. Um, but it's funny how many people have been asking me why I said it in the 90s and Q and As, and and that wasn't my intention. But uh, I think people so desperately want to be able to kind of put those pieces together and figure out when something was or, or where it takes place that they, they tend to kind of look for things that kind of, uh, that, that support a certain time frame. But the original intent was just for it to be kind of in its own, uh, uh, timeless period. Yeah. I said, I wasn't going to bring up faults again. And of course it's a completely different type of mixture of reality and fantasy, I suppose, and that there's at least a hint of something supernatural or the potential for something supernatural. But is that that mixture and that kind of hybrid of reality and fantasy something that you're drawn to? Uh, for this movie especially, Faults, I, I did always think of it as just ever so slightly hyper-real in the way that people talk, but for the most part, I do think it took place in our world. It was just the mid-'80s. It was, it was around the time of deprogramming, whereas this one, I really wanted it to feel like its own world, and part of the fun of that is being able to decide what can or can't happen in that world. And I've created all the rules prior to writing and I, I never want to break those rules as you're going along and, and switching it up arbitrarily so that the audience like kind of tricking the audience into this false insecurity and then saying, Oh, never mind. I know something was going to, was, I told you something would happen this way, but now I'm changing the rules and it can happen this way. That's not good storytelling for me. So I definitely wanted to, to have the rules be set in stone but the way that we doled out that information to the audience uh, was a little slower and, and more deliberate. Uh, and, and in our self-defense, things can happen in that world that wouldn't happen in this world. Uh, and mainly it's just it's fun to be able to uh, it's fun to be able to be cinematic and it's fun to be able to do things that, that wouldn't really happen. But um, but never going so far that it took you out of it or you couldn't relate to the characters. Yeah. Speaking of being cinematic, Jesse Eisenberg was very complimentary about working with you, commenting that he knew how every shot was going to be used in the movie and why you were doing each take, why the camera was where it was. And I was curious, I certainly sensed the purpose behind every shot here as well and in faults, but would love to hear more about how you approach, how that approach applies directly to your actors. Is it something when you're on set you're conscious of and you want to make sure is clear to your talent, or is it more of a byproduct of how you work? Uh, the way that I shot list is pretty rudimentary. Uh, I, I, I have a good idea going into the day of what I need to get for the scene, but it's almost always I, like I'll have 20 setups written down for before lunch. And you know, realistically, that you don't have time to get all of those setups, but at least that's like my starting point of that's what I, in an ideal world, that's what I would like to get for this scene. And whether or not I'm going to use all those shots later on in the edit is another question, but I, I, if I could, that's what I would do. But inevitably, you get there on the day, and either the, the set is different than you imagined it, or the actors do something differently with their blocking than you kind of anticipated. I think that it's more important to be ready to improvise as a director once you get to set 
especially in an indie space where time is of the essence, and really just get down to what exactly do you need, what's going to make or break the scene, and uh, and do so in a way that, that, that makes sense. And I think that that's why the actors always kind of felt like they knew where we were, what we were doing, why we were doing something. I think that if, if people are on the same page, that it, it just like streamlines the process and it makes it simpler. If they're wondering why they're going to be in a shot when, or sorry, why they're going to be on set while they're not in the shot, and then they start uh I don't know, doing that with every scene that you do. They're like, well, where am I in this? Or what, what's happening in this thing? I'm kind of lost. That's only going to slow things down. So it's better for everyone to be on the same mm-hmm. page. But uh, I'm, I'm so uh, regimented in the way that I write and the way that I uh, kind of have the actors perform dialogue that it's nice to have that, that improvisational feel with the way that I shoot things. Yeah. I mentioned off the top the lines from the gun shop owner and how much I thought they were hilarious. And what makes them so funny is that he's pointing out all of these facts about gun ownership that should be alarming in the context of selling someone a gun. They are highly ironic, but the character himself never acknowledges that irony or that that disconnect. That for me is really where the the humor comes from. And that's really true of almost every character in the film, probably. How did you take that? I can imagine that written on the page and how you heard it in your head and how you envisioned it coming out, but how do you take that from the page to the screen? Because I feel like any actor's instinct in that moment would be to act that irony or to note the humor in some way. Well, I'll I'll say two things about that. The first thing is that that was a very interesting scene to shoot because we were shooting in an actual gun store with about 10 employees who worked at that gun store just on their day off, deciding that they wanted to come in and watch a Hollywood movie being shot. And it had the guy from Social Network in it. And that's all they knew. Uh, And little did they know that we were going to be saying these lines uh, about, and facts, like you said, they are facts yes. about gun ownership and that are kind of horrifying. Uh, and I was so in my own head about what that was going to be like. And, and I was worried about Davey having to say these lines in front of these people. And I didn't want to offend anybody, but I remember it was Jesse who came over to me and said, what, like, are you worried? And I was like, yeah, I'm a little worried about it, how it's going to feel. And he goes, well, they're facts. And I was like, yeah, but these, the facts are kind of uncomfortable. And he goes, but Riley, they're facts. And I think that that was important for me to hear uh, and, and think, okay, well, it's okay. It's, it's like, we are here for a reason. We're making this, this movie and it's saying certain things, but uh, it's not making fun of anybody. It's just saying these facts. And I do think that that's kind of how we treated uh, the performance for all the actors was, was going in and saying to this character, what they are saying is fact. They're not sugarcoating anything. Their opinion uh, is, is all that's on their mind. And so when, when an actor says something in the film, they believe it. And I think if we ever winked or nodded uh, in the way that the, the lines were delivered or, or to the audience, I think that the, the humor would be lost. So for me, it was more important for the characters to believe what they're saying and not find anything ridiculous in what they're saying. And then as an audience, we can determine that that's funny. We don't need to be handheld and told that something's funny to laugh at something. So yeah. we just we went about it in a very earnest way. And I think that the characters themselves are earnest as well. Grandmaster is the only person ever to wear the rainbow belt. It's a belt color that he created and awarded to himself. It is the highest honor in all of karate. He achieved this rank after he challenged and defeated all three other grandmasters in the state in unarmed combat to the death. He finished each fight with his signature technique, technique only he knew, technique he never even taught me. He punched through his opponent's heads with his index finger. 
was the greatest man who ever lived. I imagine there are moments with an actor that you may have to modulate that just a little bit in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Like there, there, there's a scene in particular where I remember an actor doing something that got a huge laugh from the crew and even myself. And, but I had to go over there and it's a weird position to be in and saying that worked really well on the stage and, and around everybody. And it, it, it was funny, but it wasn't funny for the movie. It wasn't right for the movie. And being able to to do that is, is a, a tricky space to be in, but it's also very important. And, and I, I always was conscious of our tone overall and that there, it's a tightrope that we were walking in, in terms of like, it, as funny as it, some of these lines are, if you say them as if they're funny, if you believe that they're funny, then it's not going to be funny for the audience. So it was a tricky thing, but it was, it's the space that I love working in. And, and that balance is always fun for me to kind of like straddle. Yeah. I want to close with the film swatting five. It's uh, kind of our rapid fire end to interviews here where I would love to just kind of go back through some of the movies you love and movies that were influences, but start with the question, what was the last movie you saw in the theater that wasn't your own? Uh, last movie I saw in the theater was The Farewell uh, the other day. And a fan, generally, of the film? Oh, yes, very much so. I loved it. And I uh, am so excited that Lulu is getting uh, the attention that she rightly deserves for this movie. And it would be shocking to me if it wasn't uh, on everyone's lips at the end of the year. It's yeah. so, such a good film. What about a movie that you revisited recently? Revisited? Uh, well, it's not necessarily revisit for my own reasons. I, I went into a podcast... Uh, called Screen Drafts, uh, and I invited my friend Brian Cogman to be a part of that. He's a Game of Thrones, former Game of Thrones writer, and it would where you make a list of movies, uh, and we made our list of the definitive Disney 2D animation films. So I went back and revisited a lot of 2D Disney animated films, including I hadn't seen Beauty and the Beast or, or uh, Little Mermaid since I was a little kid. And just, see, yeah, Little Mermaid was, was surprising at just how much it held up. Uh, and I, I couldn't remember the last time I watched it, but that was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And then I'm watching it again now in my living room as an adult, and it works in so many different ways than you think of as a kid. Really? So that, that, that would probably be the one I would say. Yeah, I'd like to revisit both of those. I don't think I've seen The Little Mermaid since my sisters were very little a long time ago. What about a random film or filmmaker you love? Random? Oh, random. random like, I, I love the, like, what comes to mind first. Uh, so I was at my agency yesterday and got in the elevator with my agent, and then another agent walked in, and he, uh, my agent introduced me to him and said, oh, you, do you know Andrew, uh, Andrew Bajowski? Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, I love, love his stuff. Uh, so I would say him, Computer Chess, is one of those movies that I think flew under the radar yeah. when it first came out. And it's so inventive in the way that it's shot and directed, uh, but I love that movie so much. So Computer Chess. Yeah, great recommendation. What about a movie you credit with becoming a filmmaker? Uh, man, that's a good one. I would say the one that really influenced the short that may help me figure out my voice was this Greek film called L, just the letter, letter L. Uh, that one I, I saw at Sundance in 2012 and I went to a midnight showing of it. Most of the audience fell asleep because it was not only really late, but the film is very deliberate and challenges you. And I was very tired, but I adored that film so much and tracked it down on DVD years later and it held up in different ways, but it's, it's not a film for everybody, but L by Babis McCritus. Okay. Great recommendation there. 
finally, a favorite book about movies or movie making. We have a lot of listeners who are aspiring filmmakers or maybe just starting out. Do you have any recommendations on that front? Uh, yeah, I am trying to think of the name of it. Uh, what's Easy Riders and Raging Bulls? Yeah, the that, Biskin book. Yeah, that Biskin book, it, that was one that I remember reading and just being, I, I was so into kind of that era of filmmaking and, and uh, I, I felt like it, it, it was a peek behind the curtain that I hadn't quite gotten yet in terms of I didn't have an agent. I was still trying to figure out what my voice was as a writer, but knowing like that there were all these stories in there that were really probably never talked about until they were in this book. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also end up reading a lot of books that are just in interviews with directors. And there's this book called my first movie. I want to say that not every passage by every, uh, about every filmmaker's first uh, movie in that is great, but the ones that are great are really great. So like the Coen brothers talking about them making blood, simple, uh, just like blew me away. And there's other ones that are probably in there that are incredible too, that aren't coming to mind. But yeah, I would say Easy Riders and Raging Bulls and my first movie. Yeah. Good picks that, uh, that one, the last one anyway, has never been mentioned on the show before. So thank you for that. And thank you, Riley Stern, so much for your time. Definitely recommend the film, enjoyed it and wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. You should have never started taking karate. You can't be weak anymore. I'm interested in buying a gun. I need something that can fit into my hand. Sounds like you're after a handgun. The Art of Self-Defense is available to rent on demand. My thanks again to Riley Stearns. More information about all of our 2019 Golden Brick nominees and finalists will be available at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Josh, that is our show. If you want more film spotting, head over to the website filmspotting.net and in the show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking who gives the best performance of the films in the 9 from 99 series, that group of movies released in 1999 that we've been revisiting all year long. More information about the series is at filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99. To order film spotting t-shirts, or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, head to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Queen and Slim and Knives Out, the latest from Ryan Johnson. Can't wait to see that. Next week on the show, we'll be back in our usual format. We plan to have two reviews of Knives Out and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hall. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week is by Anna of the North. It's from the album Dream Girl. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.